Hi, you're listening to Ember Island Airwaves. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And we're going to be discussing the, uh, well, a lot of stuff related to the Legend of Korra. We've been on hiatus for a couple of weeks um, for various reasons. Um, and a lot has happened in this interim period, uh, <laughs> both on the show and off. Um, we had San Diego Comic-Con, which is always a big deal for Korra. Um, we had, I recently was able to sit down with Stephen Stanton for an interview with MovieFail, uh, to talk about his role, um, in Korra and the movie Life Itself and a few other roles. Uh, he played Juan as an, uh, an old man in Beginnings from last, um, from last season of Korra, and he also played the, uh, the air lion turtle. Uh, so, so that was really exciting. Um, so we haven't been doing, we've been doing a lot in the interim period, it's just been, uh, it's been uh, a little quiet on, on the Korra front, but uh, we definitely like to get into a lot of this, uh, a lot of this stuff. I think first, just as a general um, topic that's not pertaining to the show itself, uh, or the content of the show, um, but there, there was big news at San Diego Comic-Con. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit, Josh? Yeah, um, I, I assume you're referring to the fact that Korra's not on TV anymore. That's it, um, yep. Which is insane. It, it's insane to me. It, it's it's really crazy. And, you know, I get it. I think it makes sense from Nickelodeon's perspective for a lot of reasons. And when we talk about the very most recent episode, I think we'll see one of them for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it just, it's so bizarre to me that Korra has gotten to this point for Nickelodeon where it's no longer worthwhile to keep it literally on television. Because from their perspective, when they greenlit Korra, you would think that it's this obvious big success for them. Like, all right, this is dropping the bucket, obviously. Follow-up to The Last Airbender, which is usually successful for us. This is going to be a big deal. Right. And, you know, it, it has been. Korra is a popular show, but I don't think to the extent that they wanted it to be. I don't think Korra has the broad appeal that they wanted it to either, um, particularly with kind of the more uh, mature themes, not the more adult themes necessarily, but just the more complex themes that the show deals in, mm-hmm. um, especially in these in this season and these most recent episodes uh, politically. Yeah, definitely. So, I, I think that's part of it. But the other thing is what I, I just find weird about it. So a lot of this has to do with ratings, right? So that's really the, I think, the underlying thing here is... Um, Nickelodeon has, I'm sure, missions on what they approve of, what they want to be, you know, front and center uh, in terms of values and, you know, that kind of nonsense. Um, And they've run into some of those problems. Um, They have that live action show, I think it's called like Sam and Cat or something, and that was canceled. uh, And that featured a very big name star. I don't remember her name, but she was from iCarly. And that was a big deal, and, and because she had been involved in all this controversy, that was part of the reason they canceled the show. And so they're, you know, they're trying to keep it wholesome. And, and Korra is, isn't, um, you know, it's not Game of Thrones, although it's certainly trying uh, trying to dip its toes <laughs> a little bit into that territory, I think, uh, especially most recently. Um, but, it's, but, it's, but it's definitely more adult than the shows than you, that you would normally get on, on Nickelodeon. Uh, or at least now. I mean, if you go back and you look at older shows that were on Nick, uh, there were certainly a lot that they got a, uh, got away with uh, in the past, and I think it's it's really the new leadership there. Um, but the other thing is ratings, and what's funny is that the ratings were never great for Korra, but they were solid. They were pretty solid, and uh, for seasons one and two. And it's really recently, uh, with season three, uh, that the ratings were really not great. Um, but I think this is... It's a... It's a compounded thing. It's the fact that they 
you know, they were bullied basically by the internet after the those episodes were leaked into pushing uh, two episodes a week uh, on on TV um, and then not putting any episodes online. That I don't understand. And so uh, people weren't able to follow any narrative threads. They weren't able to do any of it. I, mean, I think we've talked about this a little bit. Um, but they weren't able to follow threads. They weren't able to uh, really pick up um, the the show uh, if they hadn't seen it from the beginning. And that's a, that's a serious problem. Uh, short of watching it illegally, how else were you supposed to catch up on the show? Um, so they they backed themselves into a corner, and ratings got you know lower and lower. And now they've completely taken it off TV. Now they've put the whole series online, which is great, but um, which is great so that people can catch up on it, but they've taken it off TV. And I think that one of the things that was really smart in the past is that after the episodes would air, within a couple hours, the episodes would show up online. So people who missed it when it was airing, uh, which, by the way, that was another thing. They put it into the kill slot on, you know, on Friday evenings, which was a terrible choice. And so, of course, people weren't watching it or didn't have a chance to watch it, and they didn't have a chance to catch up on it if they did miss it. So... I actually, I understand their motivation on this, but I think they also, they're fixing a problem that they created, if that makes sense. I think the problem is that Nickelodeon doesn't know how to, well, like you said, with time slots, I don't think they know where to put a show like this because their bread and butter is stuff like, you know, SpongeBob and SpongeBob's episodes from what I remember when I watched that show years and years ago, they, it wasn't a weekly show that would premiere at a certain time on a certain day mm-hmm. and you would get the new episode. But Cora has a following that the way it fits into other people's TV kind of habits and, and TV the TV that they consume, it it has to work like that. It has to operate where it's it's every night at eight PM on Friday because every other show that Cora's fans watch is on a certain night at a certain time. So yeah. to have this kind of erratic schedule would not work for Cora, but I don't think Nickelodeon really is experienced enough with handling a show like that, and I think the kind of the drop off in ratings of Cora is really indicative of that. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know, I don't understand what the motivation is there because you know, the internet was the thing when Avatar: The Last Airbender existed, um, obviously, and was on on. Uh, but you know, they were releasing episodes on iTunes and things like that. But I don't, I don't think they were streaming them on Nick dot com, uh, and yet they were still able to keep people invested and interested. I think part of that is that. Avatar the, La- Avatar the Last Airbender was, um, was a li- had a linear narrative, but it had filler episodes, had things that you could jump into and get a feel for the show, um, or you had shows, episodes you could miss and generally follow what was going on, and I think that was key. Um, and also, I think they showed more reruns during the day because they weren't worried about who might see it, but I think with Korra, it's a little bit, you know, if you saw the most recent episode at, like, 2 p.m. on a Thursday because you're a kid and you're home alone... It, it's a crazy thing to just see on TV, so I think that's part of it. Um, and 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 it's not the same as their other shows, but they have you know it's it's, it's the same. It's not like a new network. It's the same network that handled the last Airbender. So I don't fully understand why they're so they seem so ill-equipped to handle Korra. And the rollout of the last Airbender was kind of a disaster too, if you remember, where they would have these chunks of episodes premiere occasionally, and they would market these big kind of events. Mm-hmm. Like oh, I, they would mark it for months. It's the day of the day of Black Sun. Oh whatever. yeah, that that's coming, and then there would be no new episodes for however long. Right. Yes, and, and that was really awkward. Definitely. 
Korra is produced, I think, so differently because all the episodes of Korra were just of the season were done, and then they just had to decide when to air them. And because also these seasons are so short, it's taking the kind of the new TV model of thirteen episode seasons, and it's a very consistent story, easy to binge watch. Um, it, it just doesn't it, it it can't work within Nickelodeon's usual parameters. And you know, I, I think the other thing is that they've sort of realized who the audience for core is. And it isn't necessarily people who watch TV on TV. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there are, uh, I'm trying to think of the shows that I watch live anymore. Like Game of Thrones and Hannibal are the shows that I really like. I want to watch as soon as it's out, mm-hmm. but everything else, even the shows that I like, I'll watch those when, you know, on Hulu the next day. Right. Yeah, I exactly. Think that's a lot of Cora's audience. And I think if anything showed them that it's the leaking of, the episodes mm-hmm. earlier this year. If I think that showed them that the people who want who want to watch Cora will watch it on Nick.com and I think this is I have to imagine that they were moving towards this from the beginning of the season. I don't feel like this was a sudden decision. Um, I think maybe they were thinking about this for season four and then bumped it up maybe. That ooh, you know what? That's probably what it was. I bet that's what it was mm-hmm. because the ratings were just not doing Where they well wanted to keep it, it on the yeah. air this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably it. You know, I know we've had a you and I privately have had a discussion about this, but I actually think there is an upside to this. Um, you're right. It's I think their audience is a, is mostly people who are willing to go and find this online. They're old enough that they're old enough that they don't need to watch it on TV, um, or they're old enough that they can find it on the internet and that they don't need to watch it on TV. I and mean, they're also young enough that they're willing to watch things on the computer, which, I, in my experience, older generations are not so willing to do. Um, so it's a, it's a sweet spot. It's a good, it's a good idea, I think. Um, and, uh, but I think that that there is an, so with that in mind, I think there is an upside to this and that's that, you know, I don't know how representative those ratings are of people who are watching this show. People who, there, the millions of people who were watching, or the, you know, supposed millions of people who were watching Korra in the previous two seasons are still interested in seeing season three, if they even know it's on you know, that it started. I, I know people who had no idea. Um, but uh, as soon as, as long as they know it's started, they're probably very interested in watching it. Um, and it the, the, it was really just a barrier of them being able to get into the show because they didn't want to, you know, jump in in the fifth episode. Uh, and so I think that what this will do is it'll probably allow those people to watch and also give, I think, more representative numbers. You know, their rating system was based on Nielsen ratings, which... I don't think are all that useful, but that, you know, whether or not that's true, certainly you can easily monitor who's been watching your show on your website very easily. And those are going to be like black and white. This is who's watching the show. Um, Plus or minus the people who are watching it are, you know, illegally or in other places. But why would you do that when you can just see it for free online? You don't need a subscription or anything. So I think in some ways this could help to give a better sense to Nick of who's really interested in the show and you know, show more uh, representative numbers of, uh, of of the Korra fan base. That's true. And the other thing is that they're not. This isn't a show where they are wondering whether or not they're going to renew it. They know they're going to do season four, and that's going to be it. Right. So I don't think it's really a concern, like on the part of the producers. Oh, you know, we have to get a certain number of viewers, or else they're going to cancel us. Mm-hmm. They're not. They know they they can't cancel Korra. They're contracted to do another 13 episodes after this. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe they just are like, you know what? There's nothing really we can do about this. We have to do this, but we can't keep having these awful ratings every Friday night. 
we'll just put it online. That's where most people watch it anyway. And exactly like you said, it'll get us a stronger. And and I heard apparently that it's been doing much better online than it was on doesn't, television. It doesn't surprise me at all. But their online rate—they've said this for the past few seasons—that their online ratings were phenomenal. And I was like, well, why aren't you putting the episodes online then? And then. <laughs> They did something even weirder where they uploaded the episodes, but they were all out of order. They didn't, like, put numbers on them so no one knew which episode came first. I was like, what? Who is running things at Nick? They really have no idea what they're doing right now. Well, like, that's, again, that goes back to this, the way that Cora works as a story. You don't care if, you know, your SpongeBob episodes order. Yeah. are in order exactly. from the season because there's no story continuing through every season of SpongeBob. Right. That's not how Cora works. And obviously, I think if you look at the rest of Nick's website, I'm sure... That's how the episodes are structured, the full episodes that you can watch. There's no order to them or numbers on them whatsoever. So it's just unfortunate. Really what it comes down to is it's unfortunate that, that Cora is on Nickelodeon. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. And it's it's like, it's almost a show that would do really well, um, perhaps not coincidentally, alongside a show like, uh, you know, on Adult Swim, alongside Boondocks, the Boondocks, which is also another um, Studio Mirror project. Um Oh, is it really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, they they actually left season two to work on the Boondocks because it was a much easier show to animate. Not surprisingly, not as much going on. Um, so, and then they've they, then they came back for season three and four, and and I think that, but I think that that's a better network, uh, you know, for this sort of thing, just because it's more it's a home for animation. Certainly, um, I know it's on a competitor network, uh, Cartoon Network, but it's uh, you could show it late at night. You wouldn't have to worry about. You could show it in the evening. Um, but you wouldn't put in a kill slot, and there's people who stay up and watch Adult Swim every day. I, I am one of those people. Um, uh, but but Nick, I'm not watching Nick. You know, it, Nick at Night is you know George Lopez and all these other shows that are not uh, they're not even cartoons uh, because adults don't watch cartoons supposedly. Um, but yeah, I mean that's I think maybe where the confusion comes from is like the only you can't have Cora on you know Fox or NBC because the only cartoons that adults watch are you know Family Guy and the Family Simpsons, Guy so. and the, or the Simpsons basically that's been the template for uh, adult quote unquote art- cartoons for decades is mm-hmm. the Simpsons you know it's a little and it's gotten edgier it's probably with Family Guy is actually more the template now um, with the the edgier humor who you know it's for the the cool teens you're, or whatever you're putting edgy in quotes um, right. Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> you can't see it, but uh, very big quotes. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, and Adult Swim even has these kind of, you know, these cartoons or comedies, and Cora is not a comedy, and I, maybe if you're an executive who just isn't aware of, of, of that kind of nuance, you look at Cora and you're like, well, what is this show? What you do know, I do with it? Exactly. It's, like, it's, a, it is a, it's not really a kid's show. It's clearly uh, a little more mature than that. It's not a really a comedy. It's... Exactly. Yeah. What do I do with this? Right. Well, it's basically it's a sh- it's just a it's it's like it's more like it, as we said in the past, it's more like a Game of Thrones or one of these serialized dramas. That's really what it is. It has humor in it, but it's mostly uh, it's story driven. I think you know it, where it really fits. Um, I've always been very reticent to compare it to uh, other anime shows, um, to 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 anime shows in general. Um, but it really would fit on like Toonami, which is also part of Cartoon Network. Um, Alongside things like Cowboy Bebop or um, even Space Dandy is the new show from the same same guy, um, although that's not as story driven and is a comedy. Uh, but it would it would fit on that, those networks because they show things like Attack on Titan and all these other uh, more Japanese you know uh, anime shows. But they I think Korra um, certainly draws a lot from those and would would feel at home alongside those and and people could follow it each week if it was on a a, a network like that. Um, 
because just like just as they follow any other you know show like Cowboy Bebop on those uh, on those networks, uh, so that's probably where it would feel most at home. But of course, Nickelodeon owns it. I'm thinking that if the creators, I think the creators have gone back and forth on whether or not they're interested in continuing Avatar anytime soon after the after the fourth season. But uh, certainly, if they do, I have a feeling Nickelodeon's going to seriously. They're going to make one of two decisions. They're either going to force the creators to make a more kid-friendly show or something that's more marketable, or they're going to, you know, give the rights to someone else and say, you know, look, we can't do this. We're going to sell it to you for X number of dollars, and you're going to have to handle this because Nickelodeon's not the home for this show. Because um, those are really their only options. Otherwise, they're entirely, um, they, you know, they clearly don't know how to handle, uh, you know, Avatar Universe, especially in the direction that it's gone. Yeah, and you know what? I I bet that after the kind of the way that Korra has gone for them, I think they'd be more willing to do that than before Korra. Even oh yeah, than they would than they would have when Korra was pitched to them. When Korra, I'm sure they wanted to keep a tight grip on whatever the next Avatar thing was going to be because mm-hmm. that show was such a big hit. Right. But now that Korra's you know really not been a big hit, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they were like you know what you want to do this that's fine we'll sell the rights to you know where they should go they should go to netflix netflix is the perfect <laughs> for Korra because Korra is so it's 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 offbeat and it's weird and netflix isn't a network it's just a place where you can go to watch whatever you want so if they put Korra up there people would be like oh you know what this seems like an interesting show this you could you know do the taste profile and say see all the things about Korra that you might like Mm -hmm. you know because it's not it doesn't fit into I don't any one category really and you could they could go a little bit darker and they could go more mature without having to worry about Nickelodeon censors yeah I think you know I was I was reticent to to mention that too um to mention Netflix I think it fits um it does fit with Netflix as, as you said uh for all those reasons but I like Adult Swim better just because it's a uh, or or Toonami just because they although you know I got to say Toonami doesn't they're not a network <laughs> the funny thing about them is that Cartoon Network would have to take the production into it as well whereas um, most of the shows like Attack and Titan and all that th- those are all made elsewhere and then they just happen to be shown on Toonami they're not made by Cartoon Network they're not Cartoon Network originals so I think that you're right that in some ways but then Netflix doesn't um, I don't. I think they they're they're starting a few animated projects, but they're mostly not. Um, they mostly don't do that, so it could be an interesting avenue for them. Um, but either way, I think the point is really that Nickelodeon is not the home for Korra. It's not the home for Avatar anymore, um, unless they skew very childish in the future. Um, so I think that it would be ideal, and I think they might be more willing to let it go, as you said, and probably for a lower price. Um, although, you know, if you can get the money for it, you can get the money for it. <laughs> um, exactly. So, why don't we uh, discuss the most recent episode? So, a lot has happened um, since our last podcast, uh, and we can get a little bit into broad uh, commentary about the the way this this season has gone. Um, but first, I think we should just we should cover this this most recent episode because I think it's uh, it was pretty huge, pretty huge, exciting. Um, yeah, long live the queen. So, uh, <laughs> so how did how did you feel? How, what what did this episode do for you? Um, so just to set the stage here, uh, Korra and Asami have been captured by the Earth Queen. The Red Lotus has um, delivered. Uh, the Red Lotus has captured Mako and Bolin, and um, everything seemed to be in disarray at the end of the last episode, which was called um, what was it the called? Stakeout. Oh, right? The Stakeout. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I don't know about you, when I saw the title of this episode, I kind of assumed that um, <laughs> the Queen was not long for this world. Mm. Um, I did not see it going the way that it went. Oh, that yeah. scene is... Uh, I, this scene is is the, is a perfect encapsulation of everything we've just talked about. Yep. <laughs> why Korra does not belong on Nickelodeon. Because it's a horrifying scene. It is. It looked, you, know what it, you know what it looked just like? And I, I was going to get into this. I think... Uh, you know, her eyes are bulging. You can see, like, the red around her eyes. It looks so much like a very, very popular, famous death on Game of Thrones that I will not spoil here. That's what, that's, I was trying to place it. You're exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yep, the eyes and everything, yeah. Uh, which is, which is also stuff, I think it's a, it's a choking, so it's a similar sort of thing. Yeah, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And it's funny, because this, this reminded me of the bloodbending episode of The Last Airbender, mm. because prior to that point, you think of waterbending, and you, you're like, you know, waterbending, it's, you know, you can use it, obviously, for, for fighting, but it's, you can't do anything really horrifying with it. Mm-hmm. And then you get bloodbending, and you're like, oh my god, this is the possibility. Obviously, this, this can happen in this world, and it's so just awful. And this is that for airbending. You never really think of airbending as, you know, violent and destructive, and maybe that's because we don't see a lot of it, you know, prior to this. But in these most recent episodes, in particular, airbending has been used in battle, very specifically, you know, mm-hmm. as a fighting technique. And here it's like, he, I mean, he sucks all the air out of her lungs yeah. until she suffocates. Yep. It's, it's just... And you, you know, the best part about it is that they, he does like a little air ball around her head, and the last time we really saw air balls were... Um, Janora and, and her siblings all using them as a result of Aang's, I guess, influence. And I think that it's really kind of interesting to use that same uh, imagery in such a horrible, horrifying way in this scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, one other thing, I just as, just to pull it back to Game of Thrones, um, there there's a musical thing here going on when, um, when uh, Zaheer is about to enter the throne room. You're gonna say that, yep. Yeah, That's and 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 they're playing like a string instrument, and it sounds just like the beginning of the Reigns of Castamere. Yeah, I noticed that too. It's I think it's here's theme, like his. I, his it is, but it's so. It's it's exactly <laughs> like for a few notes, it sounds like the Reigns of Castamere, and this is. And when that happened, I was like, "Oh, someone's gonna die," and then I was, I was like, like, "Why yeah. am I thinking that?" <laughs> it's a it's an insane scene, and I don't know if you picked up on this. Um, they never say that she died. They all they every time they mention it, they say she was taken down mm-hmm. or stuff like and that. And she's gone. Or she's, yeah, she yeah. she's gone. She she's she's no more or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you just know that's Nickelodeon. You know the word from on high saying you cannot say that she was murdered. Mm-hmm. You cannot use the you can do it, we, we, but you cannot use the word murdered mm-hmm. on our Nickelodeon show. That's the final straw. So they keep having to talk around it. It's which is kind they of do, funny. but I mean it's so clear. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard funny. to. That was, if that was how it happened with the executives, that was clearly a last-ditch effort to avoid, you know, the, the trauma of this episode. Or to avoid a M rating or a T rate or something that they didn't want. Um, yeah. So, and I think... They didn't have to, they avoided it pretty clearly. They put it on the internet. Don't have to rate it. They don't have to rate it. Yeah, exactly. They don't have to care now. Um, and I think that was part of it. I think the other thing, too, is they probably didn't, they probably saw the script and they figured it would be like some of the other deaths we've seen in this show that have been a little bit... You know, when uh, when Tarlock and Amon die uh, in the first season, it's very 
you know, they, the camera pulls all the way back, and it's very distant, this explosion, and you sort of get the uh, impression that um, that they died, but you don't you don't see it so vividly and so up close and so <laughs> horrifyingly. So I think uh, this was really that thing. Having said that, I think they probably... so. But on that note, I think they they probably saw the script and figured it would be something more along those lines, when in fact it was um, way more brutal than perhaps they had anticipated. And maybe an an executive saw that episode coming up and said, you know what, we're not even going to wrestle with the uh, TV ratings. We're just going to switch this to online. Well, I can see how on the page it kind of, if you read that, it's, you know, he takes all the air out of her lungs. It sounds like... It doesn't sound as brutal as it is yeah. depicted. Though, of course, if you imagine that happening in real life, that's what it would look like. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. But if you read it on the page, and especially in the context of this you know, this animated children's show or whatever, it, it doesn't... You wouldn't imagine it as being so graphic. Right. right. And, you know, I think it's a, it has to do with changes in leadership because anybody who has been there since the beginning of Avatar The Last Airbender probably would be aware that there's a pot- potential for the show to get very dark very quickly because um, it happens throughout avatar the last airbender and p- at points especially with bloodbending um or if you've been following this series uh but again yeah you're right i think maybe it just it just didn't translate or click in anyone's head or they thought well let's see um or maybe to be to be fair we're not you know we're, we're going from the opposite direction maybe uh the executives were really pushing for it and the it was the tv ratings people who said if you put this on tv you're going to need to rate it differently and they were, you know, they wrestled with them, and maybe they were fighting for it, and that's why they put it online, because they didn't, you know, they could have changed the scene or had it cut out or done a lot of other things, and they instead they opted to show it, so. That's true. I think we have just a natural inclination to assume that the executives are the bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. It, you know, it's entirely possible that they were just, they were saving the show, basically, by putting it online. Yeah, yeah, preserving its integrity, exactly. Um, I don't know, you know, who, who knows? We don't know what the inner machinations of Nickelodeon are. But um, but in any case, it's a great it's a great scene. It really ups the stakes. Um, it's not really surprising. We knew exactly what, uh, what his plan was for the leaders uh, of the, the, the various nations. Um, oh, actually, that brings me to a point that I think uh, I would like to bring up now because I think it's a cool idea. Um... So I noticed, I realized this about, I think it was during this episode. These uh, these books are named, you know, it starts with air, which we didn't see in the previous series. Uh, and then we get spirits and then change, and I'm sure the next book will be some other, you know, abstract concept. Um, but uh, each book has still followed the uh, Avatar cycle. The first book was uh, air, and the second one was mostly about the water tribe, and they mostly stuck around uh, water-related things. Um and the the main villain was a was a waterbender. And then in this book, uh, we have uh, it's, we've mostly been in having to having to do with the the Earth Kingdom. So we see um, we see Zhao Fu and we see Ba Sing Se, and everything's very Earth Kingdom centric. There's no almost no Fire Nation, uh, no you know waterbenders. There's, there's not a lot of involvement from those other communities. We certainly don't go to those places, and I think that that's intentional. And and that brings me, leads me to believe that. Um, Two, two big things about this, this, and we're going to talk about the Red Lotus plans uh, after this, but um, I think that this leads me to believe the end of this season, as many people are hoping will happen, will end on a down note. And much like the end of book two of Avatar The Last Airbender, um, uh, Crossroads of Destiny, and the Red Lotus will, will win. Something will happen. Maybe Korra will get captured. Who knows? Um, but certainly they won't be taken out. 
and the next book will mostly be in the Fire Nation because that'll be fire, just like the last Airbender series ended with fire, because um, it's the next you know element in the cycle, and uh, a lot of that will have to do with the Red Lotus trying to take out uh, the uh, Zuko's daughter, who's now the the head of the Fire Nation. So I think that that could be really interesting. Another interesting idea is that maybe um, Korra might end up joining the Red Lotus intentionally. Um, she makes bad decisions all the time, <laughs> which uh, you know I've said in the past, and, and she could decide that that may, might be the best um, the best path, and maybe she she's trying to take out the uh, the Fire Nation leadership um, as a pawn of the Red Lotus. And so I, I think that there's a lot of interesting ways this could go, but I think the Red Lotus is going to be pretty constant through the next two seasons. It's interesting, and certainly um, it'll be interesting to see how many, how much of this season carries over into the next one, because they have been pretty singular so far. Oh, yeah. Telling pretty contained stories. Um, though, yeah, the Red Lotus represents the Red Lotus represents a threat that's just so uh, massive in presence mm-hmm. that you have to imagine that they are going to have some, you know, influence over what happens going forward, even after the season. And especially now that we're at episode 10, there's only three episodes left, yep. and they are more powerful than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have to take a pretty... I guess we'll see what happens, but... Yeah, you're right. So, I, it would be cool to see more of the Fire Nation. I kind of miss Fire Nation culture, mm-hmm. um, because we it hasn't been a presence really at all. You know, Republic City was so... Um, was It was a big melting pot, obviously. And then you had a lot of Water Tribe, and you're right, a lot of Earth Kingdom. Um, so yeah, I do miss the Fire Nation, and I'm kind of sad we haven't gotten a whole lot of uh, Zuko this season. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, also intentional. E- either he's going to die or something terrible at the end of this season, or um, one of the things I'm kind of... Uh, people have speculated this. I, I like this idea that Toph and Katara and Zuko will all show up uh, at the end of this, and maybe they'll lose to the Red Lotus as they take Korra away or something like that. That could be fun, um, just as a little reunion uh, type thing. Uh, but yeah, no, there's, I think there's a lot of potential with the Fire Nation and uh, I'm just excited because I, I like this, this is much more in line with, um, the previous series. One, one obvious, uh, sort of clue to this, um, idea is that they sort of retroactively in, in the last episode, which was a huge, a huge episode, um, the stakeout, Korra gets to talk to Zaheer about Red Lotus and their plans. And that's when we get to, you know, hear his very, you know, particular worldview about taking out... First of all, he doesn't seem to want to kill Korra. He wants to take her and teach her, as people have suspected, uh, how to be an even better um, uh, bender and also a um, a more formidable uh, agent of change and then ultimately chaos and, and anarchy. Um, so we hear all about the Red Lotus's plan and, you know, in, in linking this back to uh the the idea that um this is this is a more continu uh more contiguous couple of seasons uh they mention Unalak and they sort of retroactively say he was part of of the red lotus and that um he rebelled against them and decided to go his own way and try and take over the world but that that wasn't the plan of the red lotus and i think that was Perhaps slapdash, but it was a way to link Unalak into what was going on here and, and suggest that maybe they had a bigger plan for what was going on than they they actually did. Um, so I think that that gave Unalak at least a little bit of, you know, kind of like the Lion Turtles did for the previous series, um, gave him a little bit more meaning, um, or at least background, so that we have something to go on. Yeah, 
the structure of Korra as a series after that revelation, I think, becomes much more clear than it's ever been. Because, like we've talked about, the first season was intended to be a standalone miniseries. And then this happens so often, I think, with with film uh, franchises, Mm -hmm. where you get the first, um, like, uh, The Matrix is kind of... Yeah, The Matrix, yeah. But let's just take that, you know, (laughs) The Matrix. They make The Matrix, and it's a standalone film, and Mm -hmm. it ends. And then it's really popular, so they're like, oh, oh, wait, we gotta do other ones. So they kind of... There's a reason that The Matrix sequels are much more connected than to each other than they either of them are to the original Matrix. Right. Because they are kind of hastily trying to retrofit this new structure onto this first film it's and make it the first act yeah. of a franchise. Exactly. And the Matrix, you know, I think they, I think that more than other franchises that I can't really think of, they did intend that with the Matrix, and they did introduce a lot of stuff in the first film that that carried off to the sequels. Right. That they but, could explore later. Yeah. For sure. Exactly. Yeah. They they left the door open for themselves. But I think, I think. But I think what's funny about that is that I don't think that was in, they left the door open not intentionally. I think what they did is they left a lot of th- food for thought for the audience to fill in in their head. And then they said, ooh, let's actualize this with movies because it'll make money. I don't, th- I don't think they, they left the doors open saying, well, we can explore. It's kind of, Guardians of the Galaxy leaves lots of little things that you could follow up in a sequel and isn't left to the imagination. Those are directly sequel-related things that you could or could not follow, and it still would be a standalone film. The Matrix introduces philosophical ideas and, and little things that you could fill in you know, with imagination, but aren't necessarily sequel ideas, but then they took them and then said, hey, let's make movies, uh, and then they did. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think maybe another example is like, um, uh, you know, no, The Dark Knight's not a good example either, but you, yeah, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what, I think the latter three seasons of Korra will ultimately be a greater part of a whole uh, than the first season will be to the entire four-season cycle. Right. Which is not to say that the first season is irrelevant now, because I think it's very good, and I think it is important to set up these characters and these relationships and how the world is now. I don't think you could just start this show with season two. Season two, two, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't make any sense. Um, But it is... You know, I wonder if they'll now go back and say that this is how Amon was related to what's going on now. And, you know, just to, as long as they're tying stuff in all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, Amanda has been a part of this since the beginning. And that kind of bothers me on occasion when they go back and they, oh, all these little, all these little things, everything is actually connected to each other. It's <laughs> like, you, exactly. You, you didn't need to do that, you know? And, well, and yeah. also, it's just so obvious that that wasn't the plan, you know? What yeah, I mean? yeah. Um, with Unalak, especially. With Unalak, I was just like, Sure he was, sure he was. <laughs> They're like, oh no, he was Red Lotus, but then he did something totally different and uncharacteristic of anybody in the Red Lotus. Um, okay. Yeah, just trying to justify the existence of season two <laughs> exactly. entirely. It's like, no, we meant, this is important to what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I'm sure if they could redo season two, they would have had him mention something. And then, like, you you know, much like they introduced the red, the White Lotus in, um, in the first series, and then they, like, it takes way long time for that to come to fruition. Um, it just keeps popping up throughout, and I think, it, again, had they had, you know, had the intention of, um, of doing four seasons, they would have planted a lot more seeds along the way. Uh, again, another reason why, you know, a, a network like Nickelodeon probably isn't great, because, you know, they're very cautious about this new adult version of Avatar, they don't know what to do with it, and I think that, you know, a show, a network maybe like Netflix or, or or Cartoon Network, or one of them might give them more free reign to say, look, you're going to be able to do this for three seasons. We're giving you a three-season run. We know it's popular. Um, you know, make a good story. 
and I think that's really what they needed. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, it's just, yeah, that's it's just really just such a shame. It is <laughs> that it they is. have to be on Nickelodeon because they deserve. This show is so smart and so, you know, it's so well done. Mm-hmm. And I think an episode, Long Live the Queen is such a good example of of what this show is like if they want to sell if they're trying to sell this to another network they should send them this along with the queen yeah for definitely. because like it just <laughs> it's good it's good yeah, it's, it's good it's and, good and it's also you know it, i i said this is very game of thrones but i actually like this more than some game of thrones episodes that where death <laughs> where deaths yep. like this happened um which is again saying something pretty massive because that show thrives on those moments um, so, uh, so there's that. So how did you, how did you feel about the, the Red Lotus and, and their plans? Um, I like it. I like it a lot. I, you know, one of the reasons that I was kind of disappointed with season two is that, uh, motivations were so removed from the kind of socio-political nature of oh. Amon and the, the reasons that he wanted to do what he did are so... Yeah, they're so interesting, and I I missed that in season two where we had this. You know, he's just a villain, and he wants to, to take over slash destroy the worlds, essentially. Right. That's what it boiled down to. And now we have these villains again who have a very specific worldview that comes out of the politics of this world, and you know the, their motivation is built on personal ideals, mm-hmm. and they don't want to destroy anything they don't want to take over anything they have this anarchist you know viewpoint that's very interesting i think it's complete nonsense you know i don't agree with it i don't agree with anything they have to say about how government should work but well you know i think that what they what is interesting is that they um they they make valid points about you know monarchy maybe is outdated um the president in uh, republic city on the other hand He's not a monarch. He's a he's an elected uh, official. So I think that that might fall apart there. But I do I do find this interesting in terms of the history of Avatar and how it seems to be um, they may end up being an an agent of change in, in maybe not as far as they want to go, but certainly in in helping the entirety of all four nations realize that maybe they don't want to be living under the rule of an Earth King or an Earth Queen or uh fire lord or anything like that and i think i think that that could be cool because it could lead to maybe at least democracy taking over um at least a little bit i i do just on one one last note about the uh, red lotus do you think that um su yin is uh an agent of uh the red lotus because i've, I've spread this speculation and i think that it actually makes fairly good t- sense that she's um you know she's horrified that anyone could betray her in this whole thing but her whole worldview is very anti what Lynn believes, and it's all about you know doing your own thing and you know exploring and and it's it sounds very red lotus like and she even gets to a point where she's talking to Cora I don't know if you remember about the Earth Queen and how the whole system of government is totally out of date and none of it makes any sense and it all it's all once you hear as a hearsay it you go maybe there's a connection here. And I think that there's a lot of evidence that that could definitely be the case. You know, she's so in t- in, into the interrogation process. Um, and she's so, inve- she's like, you know, I'll sit down and get interrogated. I, you know, I don't, but if everyone's in on it, then of course she's willing to do that. She's just so determined to prove herself. Um, and I think there's a pretty good chance that she's involved. That's true. And 
now I'm thinking back to the moment where Zaheer realizes that she's with the Metal Clan. Mm -hmm. Did they ever explain really how he knows that, aside from him having uh, the informants uh, in the city? Because he he, he just appears to be sitting there, and then I think we can assume maybe Astral Projecting. Yeah. And then he opens his eyes and says, they're they're with the Metal Clan, but how would he know to look there unless maybe he, yeah, maybe he had some kind of association with Su Yin. You're right, her worldview definitely lines up with his. And, you know, I guess my question would be, if they did, if she was in on it the whole time, then why did they, why did he go to the Air Temple first to look for her? Um, But you're right, I think... I think it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he. Well, I think, I think it's a, also a question of communication. How can you get information out to from one person to another? And I think it was astral projection was the only way he really got that information. But I I think it's possible that either she's in line with it or she would be if she knew about their plans. Um, but what it does is I I think what's cool about it is it, it'll link Toph, who certainly would have been on the side of Zuko and the rest of them when they put these people away. Um, at least, you know, theoretically, even if she wasn't present, uh, it puts her daughter in opposition to her, which again is fits in with the story, but it puts like a, you know, it puts Lin and, and Suyin in opposite, you know, in opposition to one another, which again is a conflict that could carry over really well into the next, the next season. And they really portrayed her pretty negatively, you know, with that whole, um, you know, she's a thief and all these things as a, as a kid and, and she ends up hurt, you know, permanently scarring Lin and, I think that there's a there's a strong potential for her to not be as sweet and and fun loving as she seems to be. But yeah, I guess I guess we'll see. I hadn't really given her a second thought since they left the city, but yeah, yeah, I, I think she might pop up again. And and if they do, I think they've set enough groundwork that it wouldn't feel random at all. It would seem very because um, I mean, Iway, you sort of got the impression he might be hiding something, but um, but that seemed to fit. But it would make even more sense if his relationship with Suyin was born out of this connection to. Um, the Red Lotus, um, and and she's old enough that she would have been able to you know associate with these 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 characters. Um, so the one last thing I want to talk about because I I'd love to hear your defense of this is I um, continue. Okay, I this past episode one of the things we didn't talk about was um, the whole desert scene, uh, the crashing of the the plane um, where they escape from their their prison cell thing and they they end up taking over the plane and they crash into the desert and then they eventually build a sand glider and and glide away um but the the real hero of this episode i think is asami you know she um yeah she knows everything she's the one who solves every problem um while cora on the other hand wants to punch things uh as soon as the ship crashes and they're like you're our prisoners Korra's like, I'm going to fight you. And Asami's like, you know what? Maybe we should work together because we're in the middle of the desert with no way, you know, home. Uh, and then she comes up with all these plans on how to get out. Um, she's the one who figures out how to escape. She's the one who figures out how to build, um, to fix, work on fixing the whole um, blimp thing, plane thing that they're flying. Uh, and then um, the airship. And, uh, and then she's the one who comes up with the idea for the, uh, for the sand glider. So she's really outstanding in this episode, and, and she's been outstanding this season, uh, I think. I really, really, really like her. Um, when people point to this show for having a great, strong uh, female character, uh, I'm like, yes, if, if you're talking about Asami, I 100% agree. Um, and I, so on the subject of defense, I just want to go back to the stakeout. Um, there's a moment in that that is so... 
I love the stakeout. It's a great episode. We learn a lot of information that doesn't feel like exposition so much, uh, even though it is. Um, it, it feels natural. It's shot well when they go in the spirit world and everything. Um, but we also get a lot of downtime, and we get to see Mako and Bolin and Asami and Korra hanging out, waiting for Aiwei to do something um, and to leave his room. Uh, so it's a great episode. But there's a moment where Korra, after they've waited the whole day for this stakeout, um, waited in this room, Korra decides that the best option, because they, they can't figure out it's sundown and they're, they're waiting for Aiwei to leave, uh, her, her decision is to bust open the door, walk straight across the, uh, the plaza, and knock down his door and say, you know, what's the deal? Is there any justification for this scene whatsoever in the context of Korra? In the context of, of who we know Korra to be, or just... So in the past, we've talked about Korra, and I've, I've basically had the opinion that her decision-making process usually has to do with her being contrarian or impatient. Um, it's something that was a big theme in the first season, and I thought was a good way to show her inability to airbend, because that's, you know, the whole thing with airbending is, you know, that you should be willing to be more, you know, going with the flow kind of thing. Um, but, or at least, you know, open up to that possibility. Uh, and, and as we see, she immediately goes, and I, this was the other weird thing about this, this episode is after she makes this incredibly, uh, rash decision that could, but, you know, bust the whole operation and, and put them all in serious danger, uh, which it actually does um, when uh, the Red Lotus finds out about it. Uh, she immediately is able to go into the spirit world, which is a callback to the fact that she's somehow all of a sudden, you know, she's much better at airbending and in touch with her spiritual side, but she still does these incredibly rash things. And I, to me, like it's, in, you're right. It is in, it is, uh, I do think it's in line with her character, but I think that it continues to be a frustrating point for her because she doesn't do it out of any like internal logic. She's just being contrarian or impatient or, or whatever. And, and to me that it's very frustrating to watch because she doesn't change. It continues to be a thing. It's like this, this will be another uh, landmark moment that I'll point to, you know, in the third season when she con continues to do this and put everyone's life in danger as a result. Well, I, I disagree with you that it doesn't have any <laughs> internal logic. I think it has very straightforward internal logic is that she is impatient and she doesn't want to wait for him to come out anymore so she decides she's just going to go kick his door down now that may not be like the best decision to make for that particular moment but i think in cora's head if she's been you know sitting in this cramped space all day and we know that she just does not have a very she's not very good at waiting in general mm -hmm. um and she just wants to yeah she just wants to go and kick him in the face and find out what he knows and it's i mean that's what the whole episode is based around i think it's called the stakeout mm -hmm. cora is predictably terrible on a stakeout <laughs> and you're right i i think what ultimately redeems it if it needs to be redeemed is the fact that she's not rewarded for it uh this is a she because of this decision <laughs> falls into their trap and she is captured right and it is only because of that it's not like she does some incredibly stupid thing and it turns out to be it, everything works out even though it was stupid it was a, she did a stupid thing and the show acknowledges that it was a stupid thing and she suffers the consequences but i guess i guess my my irritation with it isn't so much that like i that's a logical train of events but i think it's the fact that that's always how these things happen that tends to be how a lot of you know <laughs> I was watching this with someone um, this 
episode. It was the st- it was the stakeout. Um, where she wakes up and she's all gagged and she's attached to the metal board thing, uh, which is a very creepy imagery, by the way. Um, and uh, and Asami's there and and she's yelling and she's like, "Zahir, you tricked me!" And the person I'm watching with goes, "Yeah, stupid. Just like every other time you've ever been, because you're so rash and just do whatever." And I was like, "You know what? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's she just and it's it's more that over and over again, like inevitably, what'll happen is Cora will do something stupid." And everyone else will have to get her out of it. And who gets her out of it? Asami, who actually, like, thinks things through and does, like, what she, you know, she operates of her own agency, but she, like, puts thought into things. Um, it's sort of like, it, it's, what it becomes is a plot device. Like, how are we going to get them into this predicament? Mm, how do we? How about we have Korra do something stupid again? Um, and it just becomes very hard to root for someone who's so self-destructive and doesn't... It's selfish. It's, like, it's just not, it's not appealing. I, I don't know. It makes it makes me not like Korra. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I, this isn't a new character archetype, though. You know, it's like every single. If we think about Harry, think about Harry Potter. You know, Harry mm-hmm. is not particularly smart. He's not particularly powerful, but he surrounds himself with people who are better at certain things than he is, and that's how he's able to win. And that's you know, right. A lot of stories do that, and I think this that right. Avatar: uh, The Last Airbender did that, as I've said in the past. Yeah. I don't think Aang was all that interesting, and and he certainly had plenty of. I mean, relative to the rest of his his cast, and I liked the rest of his cast a lot, and they did fill in a lot of the gaps. But he wasn't constantly putting them all in danger intentionally, outside of the fact that they were following him to a very dangerous place. But he knew they all knew that going in. He's not, you know, he, he might occasionally do things like that, but for the most part, he he puts thoughts thought into things and tries not to get everyone killed along the way. You know, I, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a difficult, it's difficult, I think, to... Because, to, like, Harry Potter, for example, he doesn't, you know, pick fights with, like, huge people like, intentionally trying to get everyone else killed. You know, it's it seems... Well, he does have a short temper, and he does kind of... There are, there are definitely moments in the series where he snaps and he just does something, and he has... He does something stupid, and he has to kind of be reined in by, by Hermione... Um, but Carmine is the Asami of that series. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's the analogy that's you want to go with. Um, and you're even go, like, go to, uh, Captain Kirk, you know, Captain Kirk's not the smartest. He's not the strongest person on the Starship Enterprise, but that's what everyone else on the crew is for. And he is the leader. And that's what Aang was ultimately good at is being best at is being a, the leader of but these people. But it's Korra? That, well, I guess that's what we, where the disconnect comes from. <laughs> is Korra a good leader of these people? And, you know, that's certainly debatable. And I like Korra, I, I like Korra as a character enough to kind of forgive these moments, uh, like we've discussed before. Yeah, right. And I don't blame you at all for these, this reaction. I think it makes perfect sense. But, yeah, if it comes down to, is Korra a good leader? Is she fulfilling her role as far as the way that this type of story usually goes? I mean, things have worked out in general in the past two seasons um so i guess uh, you know proofs in the pudding but yeah i mean i don't i, I think what you're saying makes sense i like cora in general so. well things work out in the past two seasons but because everyone else you know ends up stepping up to the plate and say you know in the first season um you know the 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 army shows up uh iroh the second shows up all these people end up coming in to help uh and and even more so in the second season um Towards the end, you know, we have this whole the, the that Fire Nation island saves Korra, and they, she has a whole vision about Juan and Rava, and that's all very relevant to her story. But again, that all comes in to help her, 
via her connection to the past, her spiritual connection and everything, but it's not, but it, but otherwise she'd be dead, you know, <laughs> otherwise she would, you know, and it's just, it's a weird, a weird, uh, par- and it's, again, Aang was certainly in situations where he could have ended up dead or seriously injured. In fact, he does, uh, when he goes into the Avatar state in Crossroads of Destiny, he, he, he nearly dies, uh, and Katara, Katara saves him, um, with the spirit water, but I think... That's another good example of he's making a logical decision. We're losing. My most powerful way of saving them would be to go into the Avatar state. The fact that I got hit by lightning was an accident. It wasn't, you know. And, uh, but it's, you know, certainly when else would you use the Avatar state? It, it seems like a very logical thing to do. Whereas here, you'd if, if Korra knocked down the door and Zaheer and the Red Lotus was standing there and immediately trounced all of them, I would not have any sympathy. You know what I mean? I'd be like, that's... Yeah, that was a terrible choice. I don't know what you were thinking. Uh, and, of course, that's what happens. They get they don't, they don't knock down the door and find the Red Lotus, but they get captured. So, I don't know. It was a, it was an interesting moment for me. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, next week, uh, what's next episode? The Ultimatum. The, ooh, good. I like that. I like yeah, that name. yeah. The, uh, weir- some weird titles for these final three. The Episode 12 is called Enter the Void. Ooh. And Episode 13 is called Venom of the Red Lotus. Yeah, I have a feeling they are not going down in that episode. Yeah, that yeah, not... that, that, that title is, is, is pretty ominous for mm. sure. Oh, you know, Venom of the Red Lotus, that might lend to my idea about Korra joining them. Because, you know, getting poisoned, like, in the mind, you know, and joining the Red Lotus as a result. Huh. I think poison also, I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit, I think poison also has this connotation of something that's been, you know, it's it's infiltrated for, yep. and been waiting for a long time, yep. and then it, it finally gets you, so I'm... Maybe that's where your Su Yin theory comes in. That could be where that comes in. It could be that a lot of characters end up revealing themselves to be Red Lotus um, members, much like we saw in the uh, uh, in Sozin's Comet. We saw uh, all those characters who we had seen in the past all join the the join Iroh as as members of the White Lotus, and that was a great moment. But we could see that in the much darker, much reversed, you know, twist. Uh, so that could be really cool. Um, as far just one last thing I want to ask, how do you feel about this season in, in the, in the context of Korra? Do you, do you think this is a good season, bad season, like so far, uh, cause we're, we're, we're nearing the end here. So far it's, it might be my favorite of the three. I guess it depends on if they stick the landing. Right. Um, of course. But yeah, it's, it's certainly better than season two. It's, I think it's, it's tighter and it's more, uh, the, it's a little bit more interesting than season one, mm-hmm. and certainly the fight scenes. We didn't even talk about the fight scenes. Uh, the one in the stakeout at at the inn is just, I, I you know, I, we can keep harping on this over <laughs> and over. The fight scenes get better every single episode. <laughs> they, they're so good, and the one at the inn is fantastic, and even the one in uh, the uh, throne room in Long Live the Queen is really really cool, and. Wow, yeah. So. yeah I, you know, I, I was thinking, I was, this just occurred to me, um, what, one of the things, what's also important about the fight scenes, they're cool to watch and everything like that, but um, much like, you know, perhaps the choreography wasn't quite as intricate uh, as in these moments, in, in especially in book two of, uh, depending on the, the, the episode, but, um, you know, there's that episode where Azula is chasing, uh, and, and Zuko and Iroh, and they're all in the, like, some town. Uh, and Aang decides he wants to face them alone, and there's that whole scene. But I think that's when we see Azula use lightning for the first time um, on them, and it's a, it's crazy. It's a crazy moment because uh, we knew she could do it, but we didn't know that she 
would use it on them or how it would look or, or whatever the, the case was. But that was a way of like using both a cool fight scene but also introducing a new thing to it. Um, and also having the the um, Avatar and his friends lose. Uh, and I think that that was a, a great thing. And, and that happens constantly. They lose a lot in Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, and I like the fact that they haven't won a single fight with the Red Lotus yet, except for um, in Zhao Fu, where they're literally surrounding the Red Lotus, and they really just escape. It's not even a, really a, a win um, so much as it is a, a slight, you know, victory in that one instance. So I like that. So I like this scene because it's, you know... <laughs> and we get a repeat of it, a very brief repeat of how futile their efforts are when Mako and Bolin are sitting in their jail, jail cell and Zaheer shows up and just... You know, he says, I want to talk to you um, before you go. I want you to deliver a message to Korra. Uh, and they try and, you know, shoot a fireball at him or whatever, and he just knocks them over. Um, they're completely incompetent in comparison, and I like that a lot. It's really, a, it's it's a fascinating um, a fascinating thing that, that, again, it calls back to the first series. Uh, and also, just on, on that note, I think the, the fact that they want to, you know, Zaheer wants to deliver a message to Korra... Um, Perhaps that's the poison, you know, or that's the, you know, that's the beginning of her beginning to maybe accept their viewpoint, um, or maybe it's Mako and Bolin accepting their viewpoint, because um, we don't get to hear what that message is, and I'm sure we'll, that'll come into play soon. Uh, but it's all it's all coming together in a very cool way, and I'm I'm super excited. I I hope the Red Lotus is still around in season four, because uh, we'll get a really in depth look at them. Um, I think the C whole series is going to be building to this very radical change to what the avatar is and what the avatar means. Cause that's been, you know, a part mm. of every, se- every season so far of the whole show really trying to change. Yeah, exactly. Trying yeah. to, you know, post Ang change what the avatar means because the, the world went for a hundred years without an avatar and then Ang came back and now we're in this, you know, climate with Korra where people, hate the Avatar. We got that at the beginning of the season. So I would not be surprised if at the end of this series there just is no Avatar anymore. We've already broken the uh, connection to her past lives. So I'm sh- I, I get the feeling that there's going to be more stuff along those lines in the future. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think it's cool because, you know, we got more characterization of the Red Lotus and, and things here. I, I think they're trying to make them sympathetic, you know, in a way that's going to you lead into that. You know, we got uh, Ming-Hua talking about, you know, how she viewed all the guards and tried to come up with stories and backstories for them while she was just sitting there in her jail cell, uh, which is a very human thing to do, you know? And I think it's cool to see, you know, enemies uh, and bad guys uh, or ostensible bad guys uh, fleshed out in that way. And I think it's the purpose is not only to get some character we care about on their side, but also the audience to at least understand their viewpoint, much as we did for Zuko. Zuko immediately we have a reason for him to uh, want to capture the Avatar. He it, it's a very good reason. He's like the child of an abusive father, and his only way to supposedly regain his honor, even though you realize it's probably a foolhardy endeavor, is to capture the Avatar. So you you don't root for him, but you certainly understand where he's coming from. And I, I think that's that's a great a great thing. And so I think if they continue to humanize the characters that way, um, the villains that way, in, in this it'll it'll lead to a very interesting. Uh, final showdown. I agree, absolutely. I'm excited. Yep, me too. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, we will meet again next week for uh, The Ultimatum. Awesome. All right.